2: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
3: Five,
1: four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital.
4: Major, fantastic. It's the takeout.
1: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major, major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett.
4: Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
0: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to the Takeout. Our guest this week, John Ward, someone I've known for many, many years, who I've read avidly throughout those years. He is the Chief National Correspondent for Yahoo. That's with an exclamation point news. John, great to see you.
5: Major, it's great to see you.
0: John has written a book, the title of which is, Inso- oh, wait a minute, the title is, again, start over, Major, <laughs> Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. First question, John, did it fail a generation or just you?
5: Well, I think it might have failed two generations to okay. kind of up the ante, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you could include mine in that. I'm a Gen Xer, essentially, born in '77, mm-hmm. uh, and I think you could also argue it failed my parents' generation. They were the ones who came of faith in the '70s, really bought into this radical, you know, amazing brand of Christianity, um, very authentic and very uh, committed to living and loving your neighbor, living with your neighbor, loving your neighbor Mm -hmm. um, and and putting your neighbor above yourself. And I think over time uh, that movement got kind of co-opted by political engagements, Mm -hmm. political allegiances rather than uh, the first principles that they started out with.
0: Let's try to get some definitions on the table. Evangelical. What does that mean?
5: Great question. Uh, there are a couple of different definitions. The, the theological de- definition revolves around something called the Babington quadrilateral, which a theologian defined as you know, five distinguishing characteristics. A lot of them have to do with how you read the Bible, pretty literally. Uh, the instinct to share your faith, um, things like that. There's okay. five of those in all. More lately, over the last, certainly over the last decade, you've seen evangelical become a shorthand just for mostly white, not entirely, but mostly white, politically conservative voting Republican. So that's kind of the more common vernacular now. Um, I was raised at a time when it was more uh, defined theologically, I would say.
0: Is evangelical and born again the same thing?
5: That's a really, nobody has asked me that. Um, Born Again, I think, is a moment in time okay. that was part of a longer stream of evangelicalism, which goes back in America to the, to the colonial days, mm-hmm. um, to the, the founding of the country. Uh, Born Again, as far as I know, was something that came about during the 70s when my parents were right. getting converted and were part of the Jesus movement.
0: Jimmy Carter is among the most famous right. the people in American political life. Who embraced the terminology and embraced That's the right. idea that he was, as a Christian traveler, born again. He became a deeper, more committed Christian That's right. later in his life That's than he right. expected.
5: And Bobby Dylan, Yes. as well, at the, around the same around time. Around the same time, yeah.
0: right. Okay. What's the failure part? So all these things you've talked about, reading the Bible, serving your neighbor, feeling an attachment to Christ being on a spiritual journey, those are generally speaking regarded as net positives to life, individualism, and
5: society. What's the failure part? I think I can say it pretty precisely now having thought about it, having written a book (laughs) and and having talked about it a lot. I think I would drill it down to um, a failure to train people in how to live out their faith outside of their personal lives. Because I think a lot of evangelicalism, all the criticisms notwithstanding, a lot of the people I know, a lot of the churches I know, these are good people trying to live out their faith as best they know how. And I think when it comes to family life, church life, even work life, uh, and those sort of cl- closest to them parameters, I think a lot of them do a great job of living out their faith. But what I think evangelicalism uh, writ large over the last 50 years has not done is tried to think about and train people how to be good public citizens, Mm -hmm. how to live out their faith in a way that exercises public character, not just private character. And a lot of that has to do with politics, but it's not just politics narrowly defined. Mm -hmm. It's about how do you think of yourself as a citizen in your community and then every sphere out from there.
0: Reading the book and listening to you, I'm left with the impression that whether at the origin or not, Evangelicalism in America, as it's currently exercised, is more judgmental than forgiving.
5: I I wouldn't disagree with that. I think there is a lot of emphasis on getting... In some
0: cases, harshly judgmental.
5: Yes, and I think a lot of it is fear-based. I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting the right answers to certain questions and then drawing very hard and fast lines around who is adhering to the right answers and who is not. Some of the, sometimes those answers have to do with head knowledge uh, and then a lot of times the judgmentalism comes from a sense that anyone who's not making the same choices as we are on sexuality especially mm-hmm. but al- also other issues mm-hmm. is really sort of anathema to us and oftentimes is kind of cast out.
0: And you might get the impression, ladies and gentlemen, as we're talking that this is kind of a distant academicians' assessment of evangel- evangelism and evangelical orientation toward American politics, I want to assure you, it is not. Testimony is a hard book to read in parts, near the end especially, because what John Ward talks about is not only this sense of failure and estrangement from the religious roots with, it, with which he was brought up in, but within his own family. And if any of you in this audience have experienced any kind of schism within your family or among friends over politics now, the Trump divide is probably the most visible variation of that. I want to let you know that in John's book, he is incredibly honest and painfully so about just how estranged his family became over some of these issues. And at that level, I just want to say I'm sorry that's true. And I wonder... What possessed you to summon the courage to write about it so vividly in the book?
5: On one level, one will never know what possesses you to write any book, much less one this personal. But part of it was a longer story of always wanting to write about the way I grew up. Uh, I knew it was different and unique and probably held some interest for people outside of it, but I wasn't quite sure what... The relevance would be to people who weren't quite like me. Um, And then I think when when the last decade kind of unspooled itself, I began to see ways in which the way I was raised connected to larger trends in society. And in terms of how I wrote about my own family, um, I tried to navigate that with as much care and concern as possible. I took many measures to try to protect people's identities yes Um, I I showed the manuscript to my dad before it was ever published Mm -hmm. we talked through that whole process and he was very gracious in uh, you know expressing dissatisfaction with certain things but ultimately leaving the larger product in my hands with a few exceptions and look ladies
0: and gentlemen you don't need to know the names you just need to know that for a period of time, there was a deep estrangement between John and his father over these issues. With a sister, with a brother. You don't need to know their names. That the reality of it is painful enough. And I'm not talking about sort of nominal estrangement, like, oh, I'm a little upset, or I may not return your phone call. I mean like of long stretches of time in which there's no communication whatsoever. Are things any better?
5: Things are much better, surprisingly, maybe. Was the book helpful in that? The book was undoubtedly helpful, uh, specifically with my dad. Um, as I said, he read it and he expressed you know, <laughs> concern or dissatisfaction or a critique of the book in many different ways, and we had long conversations about that. I think it allowed us to clear the air in some ways, Um, I think it allowed him to hear me in a way he hadn't heard me before as his son, not as a political combatant. Or an
0: antagonist of some kind. Yeah. Or lefty.
5: Yep. And I think we were able to look each other in the eye. And at the end of the day, what I wanted to tell him was that I wanted my dad back rather than a political adversary.
0: And who, in the end, ladies and gentlemen, does not want their dad back or their mother back or siblings back, for that matter? I'm Major Garrett. By the way, I didn't mention this off the top. We're at the Roost, which is a food hall, southeast part of Washington, D.C. More from the Roost. John Ward, our conversation about testimony in just one second.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500-500. That's audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500-500.
2: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, "What's your secret?"
0: Welcome back to The Takeout, welcome back to The Roost, and one of the places here within The Roost, which is a food court, if you will, Southeast Washington, D.C., is Slice Joint, and a raid before us, quite a few slices, we'll get to those in due course. John Ward is our special guest, chief national correspondent for Yahoo! with an exclamation point news, author of Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John, I want you to tell my audience about, because you referred to it in segment one, your upbringing, how it was different. And and reading the book, it was certainly different than any kind of upbringing I can say I was familiar with growing up in San Diego, California. Describe it for my audience in in its uh, positive sense and its cocooning negative sense.
5: Sure. Um, Yeah, the positive sense was it was very communal. Um, We had a high sense of purpose, I would say. Um, we were sure of our meaning and our destiny. And, uh, you know, we had this very intense religiosity. We kind of felt like we were God's chosen people. Um, And that's somewhat common among religious people and Mm -hmm. Christians. You know, even a lot of evangelicals will equate themselves to the Israelites, the Jewish Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's sort of one of the, the narratives that they buy into, But it was several notches higher in intensity than just your average. How
0: frequently did you go to church?
5: Oh, I mean, multiple times a week. My dad was a pastor Mm -hmm. until I was age 10. Um, And, you know, I think we could have been anywhere in the world uh, because of how much we did isolate ourselves. Yet, in fact, we were 30 minutes north of Washington, Mm D.C., sometimes closer depending on where we were meeting. And, you know, I remember watching a, a, a series about the Waco um, Branch Davidian cult and just sort of noticing different characteristics of the, the cultural life inside that community. Not that there was a apples-to-apples apples comparison at all uh, or in its entirety, but there were elements of similarity, but we were not in rural Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think, shaved off some of the more extreme cultural factors.
0: How would the religiosity manifest? Lots of singing? Uh, oh, I clapping, mean, on, on Sundays, um, the
5: services were very charismatic or mm-hmm. Pentecostal. Okay. Yeah, rock band, raising your hands, speaking in tongues, all of that. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. That was common. Oh, that was... Nothing unusual about that. If you that. were not actually engaged in those things, your, your faith was suspect.
0: Ah. Yes. That struck me in the book, that if you were not sort of feverishly moved... Yes. There might be something defective or yes. insincere about you. That's right.
5: Yes, and that—that that, that was something I actually grappled now, with. Now, did that for- have
0: a gravitational psychic pull? I mean, did that did that like you you saw that you saw what was appreciated, what was valued? Yeah. And therefore, you became like that. Correct.
5: Yes. All about incentive structures, major. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something I've learned a lot about as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Incentive structures, and yes, um, uh, you know, the the more you see what's rewarded. And what is left aside, the more you gravitate towards doing what's rewarded.
0: How much did this community touch the outside world?
5: It, it's such an interesting question. I mean, there was day-to-day contact, but I think in the very close relationships, there was very little. The close relationships were all with people in the church. I went to an elementary school that was run by the church. You had to be a member to send your children there, and you had to be a member to teach there. And so all of the really important um, elements of developing a view of the world were tightly controlled by the church, your relationships, your schooling. Uh, You went to small group meetings that were all with people in the church. And and your personal life was often under a pretty uh, close microscope from leaders in the small group and then up the chain to the leaders of the church.
0: What was regarded as sinful from the outside world? If you were to describe how your tightly-knit community which reinforced itself with all sorts of religious traditions or songs or things like that. Yeah. How it looked at the outside world, it said, that's sinful, that's sinful, that's... And what would be the top of the list there?
5: Well, there were obvious sins, uh, like you know drinking alcohol, uh, you know, premarital or extramarital sex. But I would say, broadly, anything that was not explicitly religious... And not explicitly Christian would be viewed as at least suspect. Mm -hmm. So if you apply it to music, um, okay, you know, like any song that talked that that really wasn't sort of overtly praising God would be music that was out of bounds.
0: I see. Yeah. Okay. So it didn't have to be vulgar. If it just wasn't in the praising God space, it was suspect.
5: Right. Like some of your listeners and viewers will remember Amy Grant. Mm Hmm. Um. She was viewed with suspicion because she began writing songs that were a little too much about romantic love and not with another person with another human being and not enough about love of god and so that was sort of you know one good example of somebody who was a huge star Mm -hmm. in that in that world in the 80s maybe the 70s but definitely the 80s who because she began to sing about things that were just about everyday life people began to say well she's kind of falling away from god and I
0: wanna have you put this in your own words because it's in the book. You were caught up in the musicality part of this yeah. experience. Yeah. You write vividly about being sort of taken up in the spirituality and the sense that you felt individually about God and Jesus and all this. Yeah.
5: Absolutely. You loved it. It sounded for for a while it sounded like you were really in it, I was a zealot. I was a fanatic. This was in college. I would say for but my, a happy one. Um, I, would not, I would not. I would. would say maybe for like the first few months, I was happy. Okay, because I was the new convert. It was there was the honeymoon period, but pretty quickly it became something where I was burdened by the demands of my incredibly, you know, over zealous religious community. Yeah, but you know, growing up, I was mm-hmm. more about interested in sports. Uh, My grandfather was an All-American football player. I wanted to be like him. Mm -hmm. And then in college, that time when we're looking for purpose and direction, that's what I seized on, which it was the closest thing to what I knew.
0: And you also struggled with um, what was right, what was wrong, how you could date, how you could approach a woman, how you could talk through or even come to terms with, let us just be very plain about it natural things that happen to men and women at a maturation part part of life after puberty. You struggled with all that. I mean, deeply, it sounds like, in the book.
5: Yeah. Our way of thinking about those things, I would argue, was badly diseased. (laughs) Our view of sexuality and romance and dating was malformed um, by an overly legalistic, burdensome ethic um, you know I, we just weren't allowed to be natural normal human beings and it began and it, and it, part of it was theological part of it was cultural and it bred in me and many other people a um, pretty intense self-loathing
0: and there's a control dynamic there you write about
5: there's a control dynamic in a lot of religion writ large and our church used a lot of pseudo spiritual language uh, to keep people in line Um, Sexuality, I think, was just one part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, sexuality is explosive. It's dynamic. Mm -hmm. It can be dangerous. And so that's one of the big things that religious cultures are always trying to tamp down. Mm -hmm. How much was
0: the word secularism used in your upbringing? Was there a fear of the secular world that people were just unattached to? from faith or to faith, and they were therefore dangerous.
5: Well, what's funny about your, the way you said that was that it wasn't that we called it the secular world, we just called it the world. <laughs> the world was dangerous and bad, and we had to stay right. away from
0: it. And scary, yeah. yeah, because it was unmoored or unattached or not sufficiently attached or sufficiently moored to a set
5: of concrete,
0: very structured values.
5: I mean, you gotta remember, we called ourselves, our church was not called this, our movement was called this, people of destiny international. And so we really thought we were on a mission from God and we were chosen people. And so even other churches outside of our group of churches were suspect, not just non-Christians. If you went to another church okay. you're, that was not part of our group of churches, people thought you were, had fallen off the wagon.
0: fallen off the wagon of Christ. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's John Ward. We're at the roost. The pizza's here. As you can tell, I've been enjoying it thoroughly. The book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. Back for segment three in just one moment.
6: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana.
3: It doesn't get any better than this.
6: Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
3: I could stay here forever.
6: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
0: Welcome back to The Takeout. We are at the roost. Never been here before. I think we'll come back. Uh, Good food court here. Slice Joint has arrayed the table with pizza, which we are plowing through in due course. John Ward is our guest. Testimony inside the evangelical movement that failed the generation is the book. John, as I mentioned before, chief national correspondent for Yahoo! with an exclamation point news. I'll get to the Trump factor in a minute because I don't think this book would have been the book it became without the Trump factor. We'll get to that in a second. But everything we've just talked about in segment two creates a... Kind of a dichotomy for me because as i understand the story of jesus as i understand the story of those who beheld his life and his journey one of the most mesmerizing and important and confounding parts of his life was his ability to forgive his great ability to forgive all manner of pains insults humiliations etc most memorably, at the point of crucifixion. Yeah. They know not what they do. Yeah. And yet, within this conversation we've had and the experience you had, it doesn't seem like forgiveness is a very topical part of that lived life in Christ. Why is
5: that? How is that? And would, I, would you agree with the premise of my question? Um, the premise that forgiveness is not common? There, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I think I I think you're referring in large part to religious culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And um I have to say I I just think that there has been a decades-long crusade uh to convince religious conservatives that they should be afraid. Um And there are many inputs into that. Uh, Not all of it is the product of, you know, what I like to call crisis merchants or conflict entrepreneurs. But, you know, I think going back to the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, you Mm -hmm. had people who saw an opportunity. But I I don't think this is relatively new behavior. I think Mm -hmm. probably since the dawn of time, there have been people who see a group and see a way to uh gather momentum behind Mm -hmm. that group by telling that group you should be afraid and i will protect you and you should give me money and support and attention and and i will keep you out of harm and i and i think that's been uniquely the case with evangelicals and i think they made themselves vulnerable to it by secluding themselves from public life Mm -hmm. from not training one another in public character and I think that makes you uniquely vulnerable to manipulation.
0: And it makes you, uh, it seems to me, hostile to one of the things you write about that you came to understand better in your life as you made this journey, the importance of humility, which what I would also say is an important component part of the life that Jesus lived. Yeah. Humility, forgiveness. These are small, vulnerable, non-aggressive Tendencies, but they are about the things that I think most people find strongest about the story. Well, that, that is
5: that is the that is the paradox right. of Christianity is you just said non-aggressive. Right. But I think that if you take the Christian story, the Christian story in its entirety, it is a very aggressive story uh, where Christ and 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 the trinity are aggressively prosecuting a war against the enemy and against evil but the methods by which christ fight, fights that war are ones of self sacrifice mm-hmm. and and forgiveness and loving your enemy. Mm-hmm. So those are the paradoxical those elements. Those are the radical parts. Exactly. Deeply radical. Exactly. Philosophically then and now. Yes. yes. And there's this No verse, less radical now than then. Absolutely. And there's a verse in the Bible that talks about, you know, the way is hard and few there are that find it. And I don't think that's because it's hard to figure out where the path is or, or what to do. It's just because it's very hard to actually walk that path.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And none, none of us get it right, obviously. Of course not. Of yeah. course
0: not. Talk to me about the Trump factor in your life, in this book, and it seems to me this book would have been smaller without the Trump factor in American life, and has it affected your family, has it affected your worldview?
5: There's no question that the last 10 years and and former President Trump were, you know, it's a big part of the last third of the book, Um, and it's a big part of why I I think I felt um, like it was something I should write. It wasn't so much the impact on my family, I think, that put me over the edge. That was part of it, to to writing it. I think it was the way of... It it was this manner of seeing this country's unique, historical, um, constitutional structure and all of the freedoms and blessings we derive from that under so much strain and threat. um, And people who are good people buying into that uh, like people in my own family. Mm-hmm. So, so I think many journalists have dealt with this where mm-hmm. over the last several years, where, I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, where our commitment is to try to get to the truth and to try to tell the truth and truth telling over the last several years during the Trump era became something of a partisan right. effort, unfortunately. Right. And he, Trump was a master at, at painting journalists in that way. Sometimes, Obviously, by the media's own doing, by our own faults, by our own overreactions. Mm-hmm. You and John Carl wrote masterfully about the way he would provoke those overreactions. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he, he took a, a, a conservative movement and a religious community that were already alienated from the media and snapped that connection and took many people into an alternative reality Certainly in 2020, over Mm -hmm. the election and over COVID.
0: For sure. And that remains potent to this day. We are speaking just a few days after the Faith and Freedom meeting here in Washington, D.C., at which Trump was the final speaker. And according to those who were there and present who had been to previous events of that kind, the relationship emotional, political with that group and Trump is as strong as ever. No diminishment whatsoever. Evangelical voters—if you look at the polls and exit polls—fifty percent of all Republican primary and caucus votes, sixty-two percent in a place like Iowa, about sixty-one percent in a place like South Carolina—they will help decide whether or not Trump is the nominee in twenty twenty-four. This gluing together of Trump and the evangelicals is a dominant part of the Trump story, is it not?
5: A oh, hundred percent. Uh huh. He he recognized that. Even prior to 2015, I write in the book about him showing up to a dinner celebrating Billy Graham's 90th or 95th birthday, uh, which I believe took place in 2013. He was at a table right next to Billy Graham. He was targeting this community uh, years before he ran for president.
0: And John, I don't know if you've had this experience. I have talking to Trump supporters, and I will raise with them gently, let us say, former President Trump's easily observable moral failings. Sure. And they will say, well, of course. Yeah. Of course, God would send us a flawed man to take us to the promised land. Right. Probably the most flawed man. And that's a kind of internal logic that I can't penetrate. Right. And it works perfectly for them. Have you right.
5: encountered this? Of course, yeah. And this, a lot of this does come from certain streams of evangelicalism more than others uh there are two archetypal characters in my book one of whom lou angle represents that stream which is the more charismatic the more pentecostal the more low church of the you know evangelicals and um one you know phrase that people use to identify parts of this is the new apostolic reformation they've been the entrepreneurs of crafting a sort of Archetypal narrative for Trump, comparing him to someone called King Cyrus in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and and sort of patching together this way of thinking about Trump in a quote unquote biblical way,
0: and therefore his flaws are not flaws; they are revealed or almost revelatory confirmation right. that he might be, if not the chosen one, a kind of messiah-like figure. Right.
5: Yeah. I. I have to tie all this back though, to what I think is actually a over, over embrace of the Bible by, mm-hmm. by evangelicals. There are two books of revelation. One is the Bible and one is natural creation. I think the further you go into a hyper literalistic mm-hmm. sense of the Bible, the more you have to ignore, reject, and even, uh, deny elements of created reality that you see in front of your eyes.
0: That is the voice of John Ward. We are at the roost. Back for segment four of The Takeout in just one moment.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to The Roost. The pizza is here supplied by Slice Joint. We thank them for that. John Ward is our guest. The book Testimony inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation. Um, you and your family, you've said things have gotten a little bit better. Uh, broadening that out, uh, do you think that is an instructive tale for the country writ large?
5: I mean, I, I haven't been out there reporting on this. So as a journalist, I have to yeah. use a little bit of caution and test right, opinions about that. Um, in my lived experience, in, in my anecdotal experience, I know people are exhausted mm-hmm. after that period of time. I know people don't want to be divided and estranged over politics. I think there's probably been... <clears throat> we've had a, a, a respite of sorts during the Biden presidency. Say what you want about his policies. He has undoubtedly lowered the temperature of the culture war. Um, you know, I think there are people who try to... Keep it at a (laughs) a fever pitch, Mm -hmm. but I think as the president, you know, I think one of the things Trump did was try to raise the culture war Mm -hmm. to to as high a level as possible. And I think Biden has kind of allowed us all to kind of take a breath by not engaging in that behavior. Um, You know, the poll numbers are what they are Mm -hmm. about Trump's support, but I don't think we would be seeing all these other Republicans getting in if they didn't feel, sense, and see in some set of data some openness to an alternative, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: What would you say has been your experience dealing with your own awareness of privilege in our country?
5: That's a great question. I mean, it's been a fascinating journey over the past, again, about the past decade. It's been quite a decade for me and a lot of other people, Um, and I write.
0: I understand, ladies and gentlemen, I am fully aware, and we've raised this issue many, many times before on this program, but I always want to note, two white guys talking about discovering privilege, I know there's an irony there, but we will continue.
5: Well, I mean, I wrote a piece in 2017 about a guy named Jamar Tisby, who's a, uh, a black author and academic who came out of conservative evangelicalism and I was writing about his journey at the time, uh, both in terms of religious culture and just his own understanding of our, our history on race. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it wasn't just white people discovering new things about our, our history, it was everyone, mm-hmm. um, or many people. And um, you know, I write in the book about my own sort of initial reactions to Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, and to uh, all of the, the shootings of black men that were captured on tape. Um, and it's been fascinating to watch that the arc of this because you had a lot of people get on that boat mm-hmm. uh, up to and, and in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder right. in the summer of 2020. And, and since then, you've seen a lot of pushback, a lot of backlash, and we're still kind of in that period, I think.
0: The backlash is part and parcel of the Republican primary conversation. Yeah,
5: I mean, Governor DeSantis in Florida has made, you know, his 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 slogan is "Florida is where woke goes to die." Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, You also talk near the end of the book about QAnon and parts of the evangelical world. You know something about?
5: Yeah.
0: How tenuous or strong would you say that linkage is?
5: I don't know about you. It seems like we hear less about QAnon these days. Mm-hmm. I, I think QAnon was always a few ticks off of the center of what was really happening. It was, it was one strand mm-hmm. of a, a sickness in our ability to discern what's true and reliable information and what's not, um, which technology and the Internet have made more and more uh, chaotic, that information environment. And so I, I write about, you know, summer of 2020, having a conversation with a totally normal, totally reasonable family friend. And as we talked about something she had heard on the internet and believed, that was when the penny dropped for me that if this person was believing something so obviously right. not credible, mm-hmm. um, we had a big problem because I was already reporting on...
0: And you ran it down. It was completely fictitious. Right, yes. As was admitted to by the site that originally posted it months, some period of time later months later yeah yes. it,
5: yeah and uh, you know I was reporting at the time on how to vote how to vote reliably yep. I was doing all kinds As of was I yes. yeah and and kind of tracking down what was true and false about fraud cheating right. all those things and I knew then that we were in for a very bumpy ride mm-hmm. going into the election and how did
0: January 6th sort of become this culminating moment of friction for you internally with your family and with this thing you saw building on the horizon for some number of years.
5: Yeah, I know people get tired of hearing about January 6th I don't. and all that. We
0: will never forget it on the show, ladies and gentlemen. I've made that solemn pro- yeah. promise to you. It's not going to be forgotten. Yeah. And never. That, and, and never that is, here.
5: that is the right frame. Because never. you can talk about all of the distractions in the culture wars now. You can talk about all of these things back then. You really have to look at the period after the election up till January 6th as a unique moment where the sitting president... Tried to overturn an election and ultimately directed intentionally or not. We don't I don't think know fully in terms of all the details, but undoubtedly his his speech and actions directed that mob towards the Capitol. Um, And I think
0: we can fairly say he was not indifferent, whether or not he was a maestro in a criminally culpable way. I don't know, but he was certainly not indifferent.
5: That's right. And so I think January 6th for me was so tragic Because, again, so many people I know and loved, I think were deceived into supporting this attempt to destroy uh, a uniquely great country in in human history.
0: And this is one of the places where, in the book, it's most difficult to read your conversations with your family back and forth. Yeah. Because there's a part of you that says, I told you this was coming. Yeah. You didn't believe me. You dismissed me or insulted me or worse. Yeah. And as I read it, it was like I've never been more unhappy with being right.
5: I was actually here when I got a lot of those text messages.
0: Here, here? In the roost. Right where we're talking right now. Yes. Okay. Yes.
5: I was in a booth over there Mm -hmm. getting text message after text message from a sibling just attacking me, attacking me, calling me names because I was pointing out that Trump's claims about the election were not true. Mm -hmm. Um, It was deeply painful Um, I am happy and grateful that I have my Christian faith to help guide me through the journey to forgiveness Um, it's it's one of the things I'm most grateful for about Christianity
0: Mm -hmm. 30 seconds how do you define reconciliation
5: I think justice has to be part of that conversation. Justice, well, I mean, I have it on a water bottle I carry around. Um, Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Uh, That's from Micah, the the Old Testament book, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. And I think that, those are the good parameters for reconciliation.
0: Good place to end. John Ward has been our special guest. The book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. I'm Major Gerd. Our thanks to the Roost and Slice Joint. We'll see you next week. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake,
4: especial.
0: Welcome to your takeout, Outtake Especial. The Roost is our host food court this time, Southeast Washington. Slice Joint has provided the pizza you see arrayed in front of us. It's quite tasty. John Ward is our guest. His book, Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed the Generation. John, if you don't already know, Chief National Correspondent for Yahoo! Yes, there's an exclamation point news. Uh, we'll get to the fun and Games part in just one second. John, we talked... At some length about your upbringing and yeah. your church experience. Then, what's your church experience now? Are uh, you in a different kind of church? Do you go differently? Do you uh, have religious or religiosity components of your life that are different, noticeably different, but nevertheless pleasing and uh, affirming for
5: you? Two two points here. One, I think I've benefited a lot from understanding and embracing the rhythms of the church calendar and liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, So I'm attracted to a higher church uh, ecclesiology, but I I struggle with how uh, lacking in diversity many of those churches are. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to learn from the tradition of the American black church, so I go to a black Baptist church here in D.C.
0: Excellent. Um, We have three threshold questions. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Everyone, or almost everyone, has been asked these questions. And everyone asks is always answered, which is the good part. Sometimes I forget to ask, but almost never. So here they are, and take them in whichever order you prefer. Okay. Most influential book in your life and why? Wow. All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're going to really enjoy some music, what kind of artist or genre is that music most likely to be?
5: So I hate favorite Anything questions Sure but Most people do Understood I, I know that you and I Have talked about Neil Postman mm-hmm. And his 1984 book Amusing Ourselves to Death I think I cite More than any other book Ever By a long By a, by a mile mm-hmm. So I have to say That would be Sort of my Most influential I think you said Most influ- influential yes, yes I think I would call it that mm-hmm. Maybe um, Favorite Now many people me- on yeah. the show Have said the Bible Okay
0: Which is a perfectly Acceptable All religious texts Are perfectly acceptable Yeah um,
5: I mean, that book has shaped me deeply. I mm-hmm. read it many, many times. Um, I still read it. Mm-hmm. But I guess growing up religious, <laughs> you kind of take that as a given. Of course, right. it's influenced me. <laughs> so,
0: one follows the other. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, movie.
5: Yeah, that's a hard one, too. Sure. You said favorite? Yeah, so here's one way to think about
0: okay. it. And it doesn't have to be the absolute favorite because no, nothing is yeah. an absolute forever. Yeah. But let's say you're scrolling. It, by ever, whatever means you consume your movie content
5: yeah
0: you will always stop and pick this movie up no matter where it is you, oh, half hour to go I don't care I'm jumping back in yeah. uh, 45 minutes to go hour whatever that's one way to think about it
5: the one that comes to mind is 25th Hour by Spike Lee with Edward Norton uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, Anna Pe- Pequeen I think is in there uh, it's the first seven movie seven years
0: of this program that one's never been mentioned it's the first movie so well filmed done. in
5: New York after 9-11 okay yeah
0: Excellent. Music.
5: Wilco. Uh, Jeff Tweedy is putting out his third book this fall. Um, I have been a fan for a long time. I fell in love to his music, to Wilco's music. We're going to see him two nights from now here in D.C. Mm -hmm. And he continues to get better and grow as an artist. And during COVID, we watched him interact with his sons uh, and his wife. And I admire him as a father as well.
0: And just because we're not exactly sure when we're going to run this, ladies and gentlemen, that reference to in a couple of days is either the recent past or the recent future. We'll keep you apprised on that. Um,
5: how many children do you have? We have uh, one son and mm-hmm. four daughters.
0: Okay. So five in all. Yeah. And uh, how do you think about the religious tradition you are bringing them up in as yeah. it relates to your experience as a child growing up within your family?
5: I think about it a lot, and it's hard because you never want to... Over, you never want to swing the pendulum too far uh, away. You never want to be mostly reactive in anything. Um, and so I'm trying to be constructive. I have probably the most meaningful religious thing we've done, faith-driven uh, thing we've done over the last several years is every December I'm refining a sort of a family liturgy that we do during Advent that we mm-hmm. sit around the table every Sunday uh, and do together in a very participatory way.
0: mm mm-hmm. And you, I hear in your voice, and having read the book, toggle, it seems to me, back and forth between the importance. But you don't want it to be super important. You want it to be uplifting, but you don't want it to be constraining. All these things, they're not easy.
5: Balance, as I told my 15-year-old the other day, is what life is all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want, you know, I think faith can imbue everything we do, but it's not often going to be flashy or performative, or obvious. And so I want it to be deep and resonant, but I want it to be also just normal.
0: And definitely not flashy or performative. That's John Ward. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you, Major. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by
1: Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
0: If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go,
3: Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.